In this edition of Something to Think About, we'll be considering an incident that takes place very early in the ministry of Jesus. And it's recorded for us in Mark chapter 6 and beginning at verse 1. He left that place and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They said, Where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that he's been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph, and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. Then Jesus said to them, Prophets are not without honour, except in their hometown, and among their own kin, and in their own house. And he could do no deed of power there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick, a few sick people, and he cured them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Then he went about among the villages, teaching. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey, except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. If any place will not welcome you, and they refuse to hear you, as you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. The first six verses of the passage we've just read are really a self-contained unit. But who wants to end on that challenging verse, uh, challenging point on verse 6? So we move on to verses 7 through 13 because we're looking for a positive ending. Actually, we don't hear the rest of the story, however, until some time later when the return of the disciples is recorded in Mark chapter 6, verse 30. So we'll treat these two units separately. But I would also like to suggest that there are many ways in which they are related. The reason why the people of Nazareth rejected Jesus has never been entirely clear to me. I would have expected a small town would celebrate a local man making good in the world. The text suggests an initial, an initial positive reception, but somewhere in verses 2 and 3, everything seems to change. And why might this be? Did they wonder if Jesus was perhaps mentally disturbed? 
and then decide that indeed he was just crazy. Earlier in Mark 3.21, Jesus' own family had come to get him because they thought he had gone out of his mind. But in our verse 2, the people asks, where did this man get all this? Did they decide, like the scribes had in Mark 3.22, that he got it all from a demonic source? We need to remember that in a social system where status was understood as fixed, that is, your status at birth defined who you would always be, and honour and shame considerations were important, did they simply regard it as impossible for Jesus to amount to anything? The people of Nazareth indicate this negative perception when they identify Jesus as a carpenter, that is, a low-status manual labourer, and as the son of Mary, perhaps hinting at a questionable fatherhood. Because people think they know who Jesus is, they end up asking disdainfully, who does he think he is? The identity of Jesus is a consistent issue in the Gospel of Mark. In this Gospel, we hear the opinions of rulers, religious authorities, of crowds of people, disciples, and indeed family members. But for Mark as our author, the important question keeps coming around to, who do you, the reader, say that Jesus is. And if you do honour Jesus as a prophet, or more than a prophet, why do, what does that make you? Does it mean new allegiances that supersede traditional country and family values? As you answer those questions, Mark is leading you into a confession of faith. But what about Jesus' inability to perform miracles? Apparently it caused Jesus to wonder too. A couple of things to note. The problem is not a matter of whether they have enough faith, but that they have no faith. Elsewhere in Mark, a person's faith is not necessarily tied to the success of a miracle, sometimes faith is not mentioned at all. Sometimes the faith of the restored one's friends or family is noted. Or, as in Mark 9.24, sometimes it's a matter of, I believe, help my unbelief. Ultimately, what didn't happen in Nazareth is not much of a surprise. A miracle is not just an event, it is an interpreted event. If Jesus is not regarded to be capable of healing, any healing that does happen won't be attributed to him. So there is nothing here to see, we might say. Move along to the next point.
We move on to Mark 6, 7 through 13. The sending of the twelve does not have an encouraging setup in the gospel. We have only seen the disciples a few times in the immediately previous chapters. In Mark 4, they fail to understand Jesus' parables and they need explanations. At the end of Mark 4, Jesus charges them to be fearful and lacking faith when he stills the storm and they wonder, who then is this? There's a sort of cameo role in Mark 5 where they question Jesus for wondering who touched him in the crowd. And after all these doubtful events, Jesus sends them forth to preach repentance, to heal the sick, and to cast out demons. How are we to understand this today? I've heard plenty of sermons on how God doesn't necessarily choose the qualified, but qualifies the chosen. If you want evidence, this text is proof. Maybe someone needs to hear that kind of encouragement. However, I'm not sure how much gospel is in that point. What is harder to accept is the business about all the things that are not supposed to be taken for the way in Mark 6, 8. What Jesus is describing is an itinerant ministry where the evangelist lives solely on the kindness of strangers and on faith that Jesus knows what he's talking about. Times and cultures change, of course, and I'm not advocating this practice as the best way to spread the gospel today. Still, it should give us some pause, as many of us worship in well-appointed buildings and live with salaries and pensions and any number of shoes and extra clothes. The text is not intended to be a scolding, however, and isn't even the only model for ministry. Would you agree with me, perhaps, that we are living in a world that is more and more characterised by this problem of unbelief? If so, doesn't it feel as if we are living in a Nazareth world, a culture that is at best disinterested in Jesus? If so, isn't it utter folly to think we can change anything by preaching Christ? In fact, isn't any Christian whose life has been transformed by Christ living defenseless in a world where security and status are calculated commodities. We do have one thing those disciples did not, and it makes all the difference. We have experienced the faithfulness of God in Jesus crucified and risen.
So we may marvel at the unbelief around us, but still we go forth proclaiming and practicing our faith in Christ. As of the disciples in Mark's Gospel, we will meet many challenges. And without being too discouraging, these challenges will be greater in power, perhaps, and in certainly in number than the successful opportunities that we come along to lead people to faith and repentance. But just as Jesus sent his original disciples with enthusiasm, with confidence, so he sends us today with an enthusiasm because we have tasted the grace of God's salvation and with a strength that says we can rely on the crucified Jesus.